All right. Uh, I want to hear a little bit of your thoughts thus far on the Radical Series, students, because I, while some of you aren't reading the book, uh, there's really no way to miss it with, with Sunday school and Wednesday nights and then Richard's, what Richard preached this morning. So I want to hear some of your thoughts from what you've learned thus far. It hurts. Why does it hurt? Okay, it's it's a different way of thinking, and and really, especially coming from a pulpit, it's a little more uh, edgier, or maybe that's not the right way to put it, but it's definitely like more direct and up in your face. Okay, what else? Adults, you can jump in too. Okay. Okay. So going through this brings up a lot of questions. Yeah, particularly if your salvation experience was one that kind of fits the mold of the American easy way of doing it, right? Many of you aren't reading the book, but in the book, uh, David Platt talks about the ABCs of Christianity, right? What is it? Admit, believe, and confess, right? Um, and in, in, in particularly um, gathering that David Platt comes from a Baptist background as did I, I mean, the Baptist church, that was really big. It was huge. At the end of every service, we had an altar call. And I can remember in some Baptist churches where we would sing until someone went forward. You know, you've done all four stanzas of a hymn. We're going to do stanza three again, you know. And, and inevitably, the pastor's son or wife or something would go forward to get the service over with, you know. Cause, and, and I laugh about that and I joke about that. But the reality of it is, is, is for the Baptist denomination, um, the intent was correct. The intent was right. Intent was in a belief based upon that the word of God will not return void and that that is what, what we are all about as Christians, right? Is one to honor God, worship God, acknowledge him for who he is. And as Richard talked about this morning, after having a life-altering, changing, radical experience that we would desire to go and make disciples like he asked us to do. And so in many Baptist church, that's what we did. We, had, we offered an altar call at the end of every service. The problem is this. The problem is that in, for many of pastors and many different denominations across the board in different churches, we lost sight of why we were doing those altar calls. And it's real easy as a pastor to then begin to measure your success as a pastor on how many people walk the aisles when you do that, right? And so you start dumbing down what is required. Because the reality of it is, is just like this morning in this service when Richard asked, you know, if there was anybody that really needed to reconsider their salvation or get saved. The reality of it is, is while statistically speaking, this room was full with enough people that not everybody in the room was really saved, nobody was going to walk the aisle after that service. Well, they could have. But that's not the American way, right? I mean... And, and especially after being that blunt and that direct. And we, we forgot what it's all about, which is proclaiming the truth, that the truth won't return void. And it's not about people walking the aisle. It's about people's lives being changed. The reality of it is that this morning, probably there were some people in the room whose lives were changed. They just didn't walk the aisle. I don't know. Okay, so, but it can hurt. It can be up in your face. What else? Okay. Right, when you start looking, when you start asking yourself some of the questions that David Plot proposes, then you not only start looking at your own faith, but then you start questioning, well, how can I share with someone else? Um, kind of like Richard mentioned this morning, John Wesley, who considered himself for the longest time an almost Christian. Well, God didn't call us to go make almost disciples. 
And if, I, if, the, if I've got this conflict within my life of how, you know, if I'm wrestling with am I a Christian or am I an almost Christian, the last thing I want to do is go make almost other Christians. But the church has done that, I mean, in a lot of ways. But some of that, some of that is David Plott. Some of that, KJ, is that you're coming of age. You're becoming an adult. And, uh, and it happens in everybody's life. You start getting your senior year, especially in your college years, there's a transformation that happens. You have to go from believing what your parents in the church taught you to believe, whereas a child, you just believe because that's what your parents told you. And as you become an adult, you've got to internalize that. You've got to decide for yourself, okay, I'm going to continue to believe what my parents have taught me is truth, or I'm going to go find something else. So some of that, I mean, you're getting a double whammy right now because you're getting that in a great series and a great book that causes us to reflect and reconsider, but you're also getting that at this stage in life. You know, you've got to decide for yourself these things as you go out into adulthood and become a man. All right, what else? Yeah, okay. Nothing from the adults. Makes you rethink your priorities. Okay. Anybody else? Right. The reality of this book and what David Plott is proposing, the reality of the gospel of Jesus, it's an all-or-nothing deal. And that's going to be the difficulty that everyone in the room faces as we go through this series. It's all or nothing. Right. It seems so much easier before. One of the things that we're going to discover as we go through the series, as you continue, is that you'll find out it's actually easier following the real gospel. Right now, it's not because right now we're hearing about all the cost. But we're going to find out eventually, if, as we stick through it, we're going to find out it's actually easier. Uh, but, but the reality of it is, is that for most of us right now, we're, we're at the beginning stages of things. And just like David Plott's book is just like the gospel in that it's an all or nothing kind of deal. You have to endure this part, understand where we're really at, what is really required from us, from the gospel, that the gospel requires from us before we can truly walk in that and experience the abundant life that Christ came to give us, Right? And John Wesley was a great example of that that Richard gave us this morning. John Wesley kind of went the other way around. John Wesley was going through all these actions to try to get to a place where he understood what was really required of him. And imagine that by going through all these disciplines and things that he would get there and he came to the realization that it was topsy-turvy. That really what was required of him was total surrender and understanding that it was God's prevenient grace. And that there was nothing in, it within, in and of himself that he could offer, that he could bring to the table. And when he gave up, or as Paul puts it, when he died to himself, believed not just that Jesus was the Son of God, but believed in the grace that accompanies that. Believed that it is a work of the Holy Spirit in his life to transform him, to make him more like Christ. Then the disciplines which were ritualistic disciplines became joy life desires that's a that's a subtle very subtle shift but the reality of it is is that if i'm having my daily quiet time if i'm reading the word if i'm memorizing the word if i'm praying fasting going through all the spiritual disciplines in order to in order to obtain favor from God or feel like I'm being the Christian he wants me to be, the reality of it is, is that we're just getting in the way. What Christ has asked us to do is to die to ourselves, to let his Holy Spirit come and make this radical change within us. 
And, and, and the reality of it is, is that salvation truly comes when we come to that understanding. That it's not us deciding to turn from our old life, deciding to follow all these things so that we can grow favor with God. No, it's us deciding to end our life. This is no longer mine. This is yours, Christ. It's yours to do what you want with it. When we understand that the reality of it is I have not and will never have anything that I can offer you that you that, that would bring me into a closer relationship with you. Because on my own, I deserve nothing but the full wrath of this God. That's hardcore. But the freeing part is when I can truly come to that understanding. And I can truly just let go and say, God, it's, it's yours, take it. God begins to change my heart. I'm not reading the word out of discipline. I'm reading the word out of desire. Because that's where my God is talking with me. That's where he's bringing life. That's where he's changing my situations. I'm not memorizing word because that's what a good Christian does. I'm, I, I don't even have to try to memorize the word because when I read it, it brings so much life into me that just like that song that you hear once on the radio and then you know it word for word because it had a catchy tune and you like the music, the word is the same way. I don't have to intentionally memorize the word because when I'm reading it, it breathes so much life into me that it, that it, it becomes my language. I worked for a whole summer in construction, and the reality of it is I grew up in South America. So when I came back to the States to go to college, it was, it was easy for my witness because uh, although I grew up playing sports and stuff in South America, all the cuss words I knew were Spanish. So when I came back to the States, it helped my witness a little bit because as I was struggling and, and letting the Lord overcome that in me and change my language, it helped out for my witness in the States because nobody knew when I said a cuss word, you know. Um, that's no excuse to say him, but it, it was a work in progress. But it was it was it was nice because God kind of just I didn't have to worry so much about my witness. But then I went and worked construction for a summer, and uh, we we built this eight thousand square foot log cabin for this anesthesiologist outside of Canyon, Texas. And it was all summer that I was there working, and I was I was surrounded by guys that uh, still to this day, I don't know how they did it, but they built houses high on pot. And, and in fact, you could tell when they were coming off the high because they would start hitting their fingers with the hammers and start making bad cuts and stuff because they were so used to being high that they actually worked better when they were high on pot. So every break we had, they'd go down to this van that one of them had that had no windows, whatever, and they'd all climb in the van, and you knew what they were doing in the van. You know, it was me and my roommate, the only two Christian guys on the work site, that would you know eat our sandwich while in there, and they're smoking a joint. You know, and you could tell because they'd start cutting, and they'd be like, "Oh, blankety blank, I cut that short. I need another joint." You know, but it was more like in Spanish English mix. You know, and then and as soon as the break would come, they'd go down there, and then when they'd come out after break, you know, they'd. They'd blow a whistle, whatever, tell us break was over, and the van doors would open. You'd just see the smoke billowing out, you know. And they'd come in, and they'd work. But that summer, I was surrounded by guys that cussed worse than sailors. And, and suddenly, what was a habit in South America uh, that was so nice that I, while I was working and letting God work that out in me, uh, was kind of covered up, and suddenly it wasn't covered up anymore because all you heard every other word was blankety-blank this and blankety-blank that. It's crazy. 
But the reality of it is, is that, that I could work to try to change my language and just get frustrated, or I could allow God to do that in me. I surrounded myself with guys that were saying that every other word. By the midsummer, my roommate and I decided we were going to have to change the curve back the other way, you know. So we just started saying cornbread all the time. The funny thing was this. By the end of the summer, all those construction guys, you could tell when they were losing their high because you'd start hearing, cornbread, cornbread, you know, cornbread, S.A., you know, and it would just be like, cornbread, okay, you know, and, and that's what, you know, and it was great. They were like, why do you keep saying cornbread? We're like, well, we're trying to not cuss. And they're like, oh, I like that, cornbread. I'm going to say that too, you know. But in the summer, but the Word of God and memorizing the Word of God should be the same thing. Just like a song, just like those bad influences around me, when, when I am filling my mind and my heart with the Word of God because, because I'm communing with God, I'm walking in relationship with Him, I'm not just reading to read, I'm not just memorizing to memorize, I'm reading the Word because that's how my Savior is speaking to me. And the words are jumping off the page, meaning by that, that what I read is directly applicable to my life and it's changing my life. Then what do you think is going to start coming out of here? The Word of God. And so it's a subtle difference, doing the disciplines to obtain favor from God or giving up to God and His Holy Spirit beginning to change my desires to long for the disciplines. It's a subtle desire, but it's, it's an oh-so-important one. Because when we do it the other way around, when we do these to obtain favor from God, the problem is we fall short every time. Athletes love to quote that verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Philippians, whatever, 1-6. Is that what it is? 4-13, thank you. I don't know what I was reading in Philippians 1-6 this morning, but I thought I needed to remember it. Anyways, uh, Philippians 4-13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Athletes quote it all the time, right? Coaches used to quote it to me all the time too. You can do this because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've heard the coaches next door saying it to their kids, you know, and all that. The funny thing is, what that's really talking about is my life in Christ, not Christ in my life. It's my life in Christ, meaning God can change my mind too long to be in the Word. God can fill my mind with the Word. God can give me a desire to commune with Him, to talk with Him, to pray with Him, because I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. When I try to do these things for Christ, I fall short every time because it's not the Holy Spirit working in me. It's me working it for the Holy Spirit. And so as I begin to fall short, as I begin to fail, as I begin to struggle in memorizing the word or struggle having a daily quiet time, pretty soon something's going to happen. Either I'm going to feel guilty and condemned, feel like I'm miserable and will never measure up to the standard, or I'm going to eventually lessen the importance of those things so that I don't have to feel guilty. And just like Richard said, that's what we do this morning. Oh, God isn't a God of wrath because we don't like that. I don't have to do a quiet time uh, for God because even though I try, I always mess up, so I might as well just throw it out altogether. Okay, and so we start doing that. And when we do that, then we start cheapening, we start changing this God like Richard talked about this morning. Instead of us becoming like Christ, we start trying to make Christ's standard like us. We change his standard to match our desires. And it all stems from the fact that we're not walking in our salvation to begin with. Because our true salvation is coming to the understanding that I've got nothing to bring to the table.
I have nothing. Nothing. What Christ values the most in me is himself. That's hard. It's hard for us to hear because we remove us from the picture. It goes against our very human nature that wants to make it all about us, right? That's what Adam and Eve struggled with in the garden. That's why they ate the fruit, so that they could know right from wrong just like God, so they wouldn't need God, they could be God. We still struggle with it today. One of the things we're going to see as we stick this out, though, is that it's when we come to this place where I realize I truly have nothing to offer Christ and never will. That is when abundant life begins. When I realize that I'm a wretch that deserves the wrath of God, that's when grace becomes alive. Not just in my salvation, but in my everyday living. We begin to abuse grace when we cheapen grace. But when grace is all I have that keeps me in this relationship with God, then I don't take advantage of it. I embrace it fully and hold on to it. When troubles come, I don't feel like God has abandoned me because the reality of it is, is what I deserve from God is total abandonment, eternal abandonment, His wrath. No, His grace that it sustains me, carries me through the trials and the tribulations. And all of it stems back for our life as we go through, and as you should have learned this morning, to God's truth, to this. How can we know God if we don't know his truth? How can we hear our God if we are not hearing his truth? Right? How many of you were here for Midwinter Retreat? How many of you, how many of you remember what Andy spoke about Saturday morning? Robert? Loud. Okay, what about prayer? Let me give you a hint. There was a handout. Do what? Right. Andy gave you a handout. That simple handout he gave you, most of you forgot, most of you have already lost. That simple handout is a lifeline to you because your entire life, your hearing from God is all in that handout. It's the way we walk as Christians. You see, there's two or three voices speaking into your head. Remember, Becky's talked about those. What, they, what are they? Ourselves, God's voice, and... The enemy, yeah, the enemy's voice. And how do we discern what is what? Truth. Bible says take every thought captive, right? Pray continuously and take every thought captive. That's what the Word says. How do you take every thought captive? Well, as you walk through life, as you're going through, you've got three voices speaking in your life. You've got yourself, you've got the enemy, and you've got God. And so if, as I'm considering whatever, it is, you know, as I'm considering eating my fourth brownie or not, 
That sounds trivial as an example, but the reality of it is, is we ought to get in the habit of doing this for everything. So I'm considering eating that fourth brownie. Okay, I need a fourth brownie because it looks so good and it's okay. Now, whose voice is that? Is that mine? Is that the enemy's? Is that God's? So we analyze it with the truth, right? Well, what does the truth of God say? Okay, yeah, first it says the gluttony is a sin. Okay, what else? Nobody needs a fourth brownie, by the way, after every meal. We might want it, but we don't need it, right? So, so there's, yeah, there's one thing. We know it's not God because we don't need another brownie. For everything that we need is in Him because man doesn't live on bread alone. Every great and good purpose that we need comes from Him, everything, right? Jesus lasted 40 days without it in the desert. So can I. So it's not from God. So is it from the enemy or from me? I don't know, but but we can discern, right? And how do we discern? The truth. Yeah, well, if I've got an eating problem, it probably could come from both of us, you know. If I keep trying and I can't just totally can't resist the brownie, right? I'm like, no, I don't need it. Truth of the matter is, is that I'm on the upper echelon of my weight range. And if I gain like three more pounds, I'm going to go above. So I probably shouldn't eat the brownie, right? And you start to walk away and there's something inside you that goes, take it, take it. You need it, you know. And it's like, eh, probably the enemy, you know, whatever. But either way, when we walk through truth, the way we talk every, take every thought captive is by comparing it with the Word, the truth. The truth helps us discern how to live our lives, right? We're not doing these good things for Christ. We're letting the Holy Spirit lead us. And the way he leads us is in every act. The Bible says it this way in Isaiah, whether you turn to the right or to the left, my small, still voice will be behind you, guiding you. The Bible says that every step is ordained for a righteous man is ordained by the Lord. And so every step, God ordains it. God directs our path. Proverbs says this, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And my path is ordained by the Lord. And so the way I know to follow the path of the Lord that's been ordained for me is through his light and his lamp for my path. And so we begin to understand. So, so this is not a discipline that's required of us. This is not something that makes us more Christian, more godly. No, me as a wretch, as someone deserving of all of God's wrath, this God who hates not just sin, but hates sinners, is what the word says. This, this is my lifeline to him because his son came and died, not so that I could call him savior, but so that he could be my Lord and his Holy Spirit. When I came to a place where I said, I give you all of me, I die to myself. Death for our human minds is finite, and specifically for the people in the Old Testament, as they're reading and are not considering that Christ the Messiah was going to come and die on the cross, bringing eternal life. So as we sit here and we think and we read that we are to die for Christ's sake, that means me and all of who I am ceases to exist. God made me a new creation. He had to make me a new creation because God hates sinners. I'm no longer a sinner. I'm redeemed. I'm a new creation. I'm not a slave to this old life. I'm a new creation. I'm not a sinner anymore. I'm a Christian. 
who sometimes stumbles in sin, but I'm not a sinner. I'm a new creation. And understanding that, then this is not a a habit, this is not a ritual, and it's not a discipline. This This is my nourishment. This is the food that I eat. This is more important than the bread that I eat. This is a light unto my path. Because remember, I'm no longer living. Every step that I take is no longer mine to take. I don't get to choose whether I'm married. I don't get to choose how many kids I have. I don't get to choose where I live. I don't get to choose what I do with my life. God does. Jeff Dietz died long ago. This life is his to live. And so every step to me is ordained and every every step is, is laid out before me in this. And if we truly understood that, then it would not be mundane or laborsome to read this. It would be exciting. It would be life-breathing, life-fulfilling. But we struggle with that. Instead, it's easier for us to go get Christian authors out there and read their books. It's an easier read. No, it's not. The reality of it is most Christian books written by Christian authors don't require the Holy Spirit for you to understand. It's not an easier read. It's a lazy read. This is living and active. This is useful for every one of your life's circumstances. This is sharper than a double-edged sword able to penetrate to the depths of the heart. This is like a tree planted by still waters, is what Psalm says. This is able to rebuke. This is able to speak life. This is able to heal, restore, bring sight to the blind. This is the word of God spoken to you and I. The reason we struggle reading this book is because we struggle with death. We struggle with an understanding of what it means to be saved. Because for many of us, salvation was inviting God into my life. Literally. Many of us, that's what we were told to do. Ask God in your heart. The problem with that is that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the gospel is asking God to be your heart. God isn't joining you in your life. God wants to become your life. It demands everything. It demands all. But when we do that, the sacrifice is tremendous. But when we do that, that's when we experience the abundant life that God came to give us. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy is what John, the gospel of John says. But I have come, in the words of Jesus as he's speaking, but I have come that you might have life. And not just have life, but have life to the fullest. 
full life comes when I realize and recognize that there is nothing in me worth living anymore. God, it's yours. Take it. Have it. And now I'm along on the ride. I'm just like piggybacking on Jesus' back, and he's doing his thing. And I get to enjoy the blessings, the glory, the benefits of the living God working in and through me. My, my, my priorities change. Things that I valued highly, he begins to change. Listen, when, when I started in ministry, I never wanted to go on the mission field, and I still don't really want to be a missionary. I still to this day, you know, even today, we're up in a Columbia meeting, and I'm laughing, and I'm talking with Scott and Mike Patsick, and we're joking about the bowel problems we will have because everybody has them at some point in time in Columbia. You know, we have some type of issues. And I'm sitting there talking about it, and we're laughing about it, but the reason I'm laughing about it and joking about it is because I hate it. I'm not a good traveler. When I, get, when I don't sleep in my bed, when my sleeping cycle gets changed, I get moody. My body just starts acting weird. I get sick. I hate it. Traveling, I love being in other places, but the traveling, getting to point, from point A to point B, a 12-hour flight to me now at 36 years of age, believe it or not, 12 hours in traveling, next three days after that, I'm going to be a zombie in Colombia. I'm going to be struggling because, because traveling just has that effect on my body anymore, and I hate it. And if you had asked me 10 years ago if I was going to be involved in missions, I would have told you, heck no. My parents were called. I am not. But I'm not, I don't live anymore. It's not my life to live. It's God's. And so I go. And you know what? I would, I would much rather be miserable in seeing what God is doing through me, not because of me, not with me, not in me, through me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because I'm not alive. I'm just along for the ride. So I can go to the jungles of Cambodia and I can sit for eight hours while they're speaking in Khmer and Chiv sharing the gospel and I can praise the Lord. I can go to Colombia for the seventh time and I can, I can love on those kids because God has something he wants to do. And I can say, God, yeah, you want me to go? Let's, let's do this thing. Let's do it. I can't wait to see what God does. When I read the Word, I'm not reading it because I have to. I'm reading it because I want to. Because the living God of the universe, the one that more people hear about than hear from, speaks to me. And these words come alive, and they change my life. And even better than that, when I speak them to other people, just today I was talking with a young man and who's got some life issues going on, and I just begin to speak the word into his life, and, and you can just see transformation beginning to happen. You can see a captive being set free, and it is, it is amazing. You can see that which was stolen from him, that which was destroying him and killing him, you can see it beginning to break free and you can see the abundant life that God has for him on the other side. And, and that is life worth living. You can't pay for it with money. You can't buy it. It's the living God, alive and active. And when you begin to see that, then the cost over here is nothing. Nothing. Because you realize that as this wretch, asking Christ to be a part of your life just brings misery. 
brings guilt, brings condemnation, brings failure. Because you're trying to do this, this, and this for God. And you can't. But when you give it up, when you give it all up, then later on down the road you look back and you can say, man, look at what God has done. Not look at what I have done. Look what God has done. I'm blown away each and every day. His word has changed me. His truth has liberated me. I'm a different person. And tomorrow I'll be different. And the day after that I'll be even more different. And the day after that I'll be even more different. And one day instead of saying cornbread, I'll start saying manna. And then one day I won't say anything at all. (laughs) That's good stuff. Actually, that's really good. I need to do that. Holy manna! (laughs) Okay. Yeah. One last story and I'm done. When I was 15, uh, yeah, 15, my older brother is two years older. He and his classmates, we lived in the Strait of Magellan. My parents were missionaries in Chile. Strait of Magellan is the southern tip of the continent of South America. After the Strait of Magellan, there's nothing more than island. There's one island called the Fire Islands, and then there's Antarctica. And so we lived on the Strait of Magellan. Our house is four blocks from the Strait of Magellan. Uh, Strait of Magellan is tundra. It looks like the panhandle of Texas, those of you who've been up there. Just flat tundra for as far as the eyes can see. There's a mountain range, the Andes off in the distance, but other than that, it's tundra. Well, down there, there's this national park. You drive about five hours out of the, the capital of the 12th region down there, and, uh, and you're driving on this tundra flat ground, and all of a sudden, you kind of come over this little mesa top, and there's these valleys and these mountains called Torres del Paine. And every one of you have seen them. You just don't realize you've seen them. They're in movies all the time because these mountains are just ridiculous the way they look. Uh, they've been nominated for the top ten wonders of the world every time they revisit them. And, and at one point in time during history, they were ranked number seven or something like that. But anyways, it's about four hours out of where we lived. The, the state, 12th region, they call them regions, actually, 12th region is uh, about 90% virgin forest meaning it's untamed. Man's never walked on it because the climate is just so weird down there and it's hard to get to. There's no roads, whatever. This park's one of them. You know, very few people, we're talking about hundreds, not thousands, hundreds of people in the world have ever been there. Well, my brother's class, uh, all these guys, um, because we lived down there, it'd be like living in Alaska or something, uh, they would go backpacking all the time and they would go to this park and they'd backpack for like 10 days, you know. When I was 15, they were going on a trip, and I was like, oh, man, that just sounds cool. I'd love to do that, whatever. They were all at my house planning their trip, their diet, and all this stuff. They're like, well, come on, Jeff, come with us. And I was like, no, that's okay. And they're like, no, really, come on. And Jason's like, I don't mind. And I was like, cool, let's do it. And at the time, I've got a curvature in my spine. I still have it. But at the time, I had to wear a back brace 24 hours a day. And uh, so I was like, yeah, Dad, I want to go. And he's like, that's cool, but you got to wear your brace. I'm like, oh, come on, Dad. And he's like, no, no, that's the rules. I'm like, okay, cool, I'll do it, no problem. So uh, I had a backpack. I'd never used it, but like a big packing pack. Uh, so we loaded up, and our packs weighed like 40 pounds a piece because you're going for 10 days. And we were stupid high school boys in Chile. I mean, we learned after this trip, but we were packing like cans of food instead of like dried out food that weighs nothing. We're packing cans of food. 40 pounds doesn't sound a lot, but when you're backpacking, 40 pounds is like a ton. 
okay? Uh, anyways, we get there. We, we get on this bus, a four-hour bus ride to this small little town. We get to this town. Uh, one of the guys in my brother's class has sheep, a sheep ranch that, that sits, neighbors this national park, national forest. So he meets us at the bus station at this other little town. He drives another three hours. We're in the back of his pickup, <laughs> not on roads. We're just driving across fields into where his little ranch is. And we're talking like out in the no plumbing, no phones, no internet, no nothing. We're talking out in the boonies. Four-wheel driving us in there in this truck. We get to this little house they have out there. We spend the night. The next morning, we're going to pack into the national park. It's about a 15-mile hike that next day to get over this mountain and down into the national park. Uh, and, and our journey begins. So we start packing in this thing. And uh, I was, the weight was killing me, but that's to be expected. But um, what really got me was the back brace I had had these two uh, bars that come down, and they were these pad, padded things that push into my back right here on either side of my spine, push it in to make me stand straight. And, and then there's this thing that comes around the front of my neck so that if I'm slouching, it's choking me. And so I have to stand straight all the time so I don't get choked, and this is pushed in my back, and that's the way the brace works to strengthen muscles because I didn't have a, mus- a, a bone curvature. I had a muscular thing. These muscles back here didn't grow like they were supposed to. They are smaller, and so to carry the weight. Anyways, this backpack on top of my brace, the weight, the brace was never meant to have that weight on it, so there's these four screws that had pushed through the pads, and about mile 10, we take a break, and I'm like, Jason, I'm, I'm dying here, you know. And he's like, what's going on? I'm like, my back is killing me. And he's like, well, yeah, it's just, it'll get lighter as we go on, as we eat and stuff. And I'm like, no, 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 it's like piercing like a knife. And he's like, well, let me check it out. So, you know, we take my back off, my pack off, and we take my shirt off, take the brace off. Or I'm going to take my, sh- my pack off and take my coat off. And uh, Jason just sees blood all down my back, shirt soaked in blood. And he's like, oh, Jeff, we better, uh, you know. Now, remember, we're like... Nowhere. <laughs> we're not. We're an hour. You know, we're at this point. We're about five hours away from the ranch, which is about three hours on a four-wheel drive back of a pickup over fields away from the smallest town, which is four hours away from the nearest hospital. And so Jason's like, "Take it off," you know. So we take it off, and he's just like, "Oh snap!" You know, you've got four holes in your back, and these screws, about one-inch screws, had gone into my back. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it hurts. He's like, well, let's see. We've got some Band-Aids, you know. <laughs> let's put these Band-Aids on there. Okay. And so we're like, all right, here we go. What are we going to do with this, with this brace? Forget the brace, man. Dad ain't out here. He's, you know, he can get mad later, whatever. Let's just tie it on the back of the pack. Well, that helped a little bit, but, but the damage was done. So we went about another hour or something. We get to this other place. I'm just like, Jason, um, we come up over this hill, and in this national park there's all these little huts for backpackers, because there's no roads in there. It's, you're either on horseback or backpacking, that's the kind of people that go there. There's these little huts, and we're talking about maybe about the size of this piano, width of the piano in all four directions. And I'm like, Jason, I, I'm done. I'm done. My back's just done. And I, I, I guess I probably lost so much blood and fluids from carrying that weight and stuff that I was just like, dude, I'm staying here. You guys go on. We were hiking to this glacier up in there, and he's like, I was like, you guys go on. And in four or five days, when you're coming back, you know, just pick me up. And I'd camped all my life, and I, I was fine with that, you know. And he's like, no, I can't do that. I'm like, Jason, just go. I'm fine. I got food. I don't even, I've got a tent, but I don't need it. We got this little shack that has a wood-burning stove in there. I'm good. He's like, okay. I'm like, okay, cool. 
So, it's not stupid. <laughs> I wasn't about to ruin their trip for them. So they get all their gear on and they take off and I, you know, I get my gear and I go over there to the little shack and it's empty and I'm thinking, hey, I can do this, this is good. Well, no sooner had they gotten out of sight, it starts a torrential downpour. And I'm like, oh, great, you know, cornbread. So I run outside, and I'm like, okay, i got to find some firewood for this wood-burning stove, you know. So I'm trying to get all this wood. Well, it, it had rained all morning, too, before we got there in this one spot. Um, because of the mountains and the way they are down there, in the park itself, there's like three or four different microclimates. Okay, so this one spot is soaking wet. Turns out I get enough wood, but I get in there, and it won't start because it's so wet that it's just not lighting. And, uh, you know, they didn't even realize it was raining because they had already walked out of this microclimate. So I'm like, it's getting dark. I'm just like, okay, I'm cold. I'm wet. I'm dying in pain in my back. And, uh, and I'm tired because I've been a 15-year-old carrying 40 pounds for the better of eight hours. Uh, I'm done. So I'm just like, you know what, forget all this. Open up a can of raviolis, just eat them cold. And it's um, not gross. All you campers that camp at the Holiday Inn, just hush. Um, so I get in there, and I shut the door to the, to the shack, and I'm just like, I'm going to bed. So I lay down, and I'm, I use my pack as my pillow. I've got my sleep bag. I'm like, as soon as I lay down, my body's just like, thank you. Oh, yeah. And uh, I close my eyes, and I start hearing this. So I open my eyes. I'm like, it's pitch black by this point. I'm like, what in the world is that? Turn on my flashlight. Don't see anything. I'm like, okay, what is this? So I, I turn on my flashlight and turn around. And every crack and hole in that little cabin, there are rats pouring in. And I kid you not, I'm not talking about one or two. I'm talking about by the dozens. They are coming in. And every rat in the park was trying to get out of the rain and was crawling into that cabin with me. I'm talking rats. So I have to confess, I'm laying there in my sleep bag, my pack's under my head, and I did one of these. I was like, oh, God, I'm too tired for this. So I looked at the rats and I said, you know what? In the name of Jesus Christ, if one of you touches me, I'll kill you. <laughs> and I took my sleeping bag, and I pulled it over my head and tucked it under my head, and I went to sleep. And I slept like a baby for about nine hours. If they were crawling on me, I wouldn't know because I was so tired. I was done. The next morning, next morning I wake up. All the rats had gone out because it was daylight. I was feeling 100% better because I had gotten a rest or whatever. My back still hurt, but that's another story. Go out, you know, get some wood, start a fire, um, eat breakfast, spend all day just hiking around the cabin, just exploring, whatever. Everything was good, except about noon. About noon, I'm exploring. I'd explored about a mile radius around the cabin, seen all the sights, and I'm just like... Oh, this is good. You know, everything's great. And I go back to the cabin, and I cook some lunch, and I'm eating lunch in the cabin, and then the thought occurs to me, Jeff, you've got four holes in your back that are still bleeding. You don't have a radio. Cell phones didn't exist in those days. 
even if they did, you don't have reception. You're seven hours, actually at this point because we'd hiked in, you're probably about a day's travel, 12 hours from the nearest hospital. You are completely and totally and utterly alone. And nobody knows you're here. Because the itinerary that you'd given parents telling you where you would stop every night, they don't know that you stayed behind. And then it's just like, ooh, I am alone. And for the first time, I stopped to think, and it sounded like this. For about the next two hours, there wasn't a sound. And silence is scary, but when you get silence like that, you're just like, oh, cornbread. <laughs> two slices of cornbread, you know, whatever. <laughs> and then it started raining again. My fire went out. At this point... Because I'd slept the night before, I wasn't so tired that I could just sleep through it, you know. At this point, it was like, and then your mind starts playing tricks on you. You know, I was lucid enough. I'd rested enough where my mind started playing tricks on me where you start feeling things, you know, like all over. You're just like, oh, 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 you know, whatever. And I, it freaked me out. It freaked me out. Day two, I wake up, come outside. And, and I got to tell you, at this point, I'm like, I'm 15. I'm an idiot. You know, I'm a little, little pubescent. Yeah. Wake up the second morning, and I'm, I'm a mess. I've got four more days before they come back, you know, and I'm thinking, I can't do this. I go, I go out. This time I'm not exploring the sites. This time I'm exploring to find any other human being out there just to have contact with somebody. And uh, exploring for about an hour, I come back to the cabin, nobody's there. I'm, I, truth, uh, honest truth, I start crying. I'm like, God, I can't do this for four days. And about that time, over the horizon comes my brother. And he comes in, and it's miserable. I mean, you're excited, but you don't want to be too excited because I just cost him his trip with all his friends. And he comes over, and he, I was like, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be back for four days. He goes, yeah, well, we woke up this morning, and there were mountain lion tracks all around us. And he said, all I could think was, I'm a blooming idiot. I left my 15-year-old brother alone in the wilderness bleeding with mountain lions around, you know. He's like, I've been crying and praying the whole way back that I would, would find you and not your carcass, you know. And uh, so we were like, oh, oh, brother's got a hug, you know, whatever. <laughs> that night we spend the night in the cabin and, and we're, you know, we're, we're cooking up supper and, uh, and all of a sudden opens the door and these Swiss couple comes in and we're like, oh, hey, how are you? And they're like, oh, we're good, how are you? You know, and I'm like, we're good, you know. And they start, I mean, they they have a feast, you know, Jason and I with our little raviolis and they got their feast and they're in there cooking and they're, I mean, they're making home out of this shack, you know, they're hanging their clothes and washing clothes in the rain and they're just making home. And, I, and Jason's like, oh, yeah, we should do that. And I'm like, no, 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 leave your pack packed. 
He's like, no, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, just trust me, dude. <laughs> He's like, no, really. I'm like, Jason, eat your ravioli, zip it up, and get in your sleep bag and cover your hand. He's like, no, 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 no. It starts raining outside. I'm like, Jason, just do it. He's like, okay, whatever. So we get in there and we lay down and we, you know, I'm like, get your sleep bag, put it over your head. He's like, I can't breathe. I'm like, just trust me. He's like, what's going on? I'm like, in about 10 minutes, when that light goes down, this cabin's going to fill up with rats. He's like, uh-uh. I'm like, uh-huh. I'm like, we're going to sleep with our faces about this far from each other. Leave a little hole to breathe. And if we're facing each other, then if a rat gets in there, we'll know. You know. He's like, how did you do this? And I'm like, <laughs> first night I was good. Second night it was horrible. And the Swiss people were like, what, what's going on? You know, we're like, you guys really ought to pack up your stuff because the rats are going to get me. And he's like, ah, oh, no, there won't be rats. They'll be afraid of the fire. I'm like, no, trust me. They're like, no, 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 we backpack all the time. I'm like, okay. So we go to sleep. Sure enough. And all of a sudden you hear, you hear like clothes dropping off the clothesline and plates of food falling off the little table in there and this Swiss guy jumps up and he's all like cussing in Swiss whatever they speak you know and they're turning on lights and they've got rats in their packs they got rats in their socks and their shoes I mean it was just and Jason and are just like <laughs> yeah. so we get up the next morning we load up our packs we pack out of there, and we hike back to the ranch house. We spend the next three days at the ranch house, and then we hike back to the cabin and wait for, for his friends to come back and find us. Um, all that story, just to say this. I never knew I never knew how much I loved my brother, but I never knew how much I needed other people. I'm an introvert, and you give me a day by myself, and I love it. Thursdays are my day off, and there's nothing I love to do more when Kim takes, when the boys are at school and Kim brings Tate up here to Monday out and she's working up here Monday out. Nothing I love to do more than just sit on the chair. I don't even need the TV on. I could sit there from 8 till 2.30. And for me, it's just like, ah, because I'm an introvert at heart. But after about eight hours, I don't have to talk to somebody. I just need to know they're there. And I never realized until that trip how much I needed companionship. Give me two days without it, and I, w- I was losing it. I was losing it. And, and when Jason walked over that horizon, it was like salvation coming. I mean, it, it, it meant the world to me. We spent the next four days just talking, just brothers reminiscing, hiking. It was cool. It was fun. Brought us closer than ever. But the same is true with us. Most of us, when we look at salvation, the way the American dream plays it out, where Christ is a part of our life, we think that's great. We like the idea. We like the idea. It sounds good. I was content to let Jason go on his merry way with his friends. I didn't want to ruin his trip for him. And most of us like the idea of Christ being a part of our life where we get to really call the shots. But the reality of it is, is it just leads to misery. And after too long, one of two things is going to happen. We're either going to give up on Christ altogether and just say, forget it. Or we're just going to live a guilty, condemned life of misery. But it isn't until we recognize our situation, recognize who we really are, and the situation we're really in, 
Like for me, it was realizing that I was completely and utterly alone. That then the real gospel, that this Jesus came and died and took the wrath of God that was ours to bear, he took it upon himself. And he took it to the cross. And he went to hell and took the keys of hell and raised from the dead and conquered death. Expunged the wrath of God that was aimed towards us. And through his Holy Spirit gives us opportunities to receive the salvation. It isn't until we get to that place where we recognize our real need of him that we can really accept him. And when we really accept his gospel given to us and let him be Lord and we die to ourselves, then we experience fullness of life. Then we can look at all those things that used to make us miserable as humans. We can look at them in a new light. Because that third night with the rats, it didn't bother me that the rats were there. You know why? My Savior was there. And not only that, but I got to see the misery of two other people who didn't have a Savior. And suddenly the things that I used to look at and go, God, where are you? Now I can look at it and go, <laughs> I told you, you know. When we completely surrender to God, it's not that our life becomes void of trials and tribulations. It's that we can sit through the trials and tribulations with our Savior and go, hey, it's okay. It's okay because you're here. And I can look at the people around me who don't have a Savior, and I can go, man, their life, their life just really is miserable. Because they don't, they don't have the glory of God. They don't have the truth of God. They might have a Bible on the shelf, but all it is is a bunch of words. But the Holy Spirit who makes it alive for me makes this thing a book of power. It makes it a light into my feet and a lamp into my path. And I don't have to ask, God, what do you want me to do and where do you want me to go? Because God doesn't want me to do anything and God doesn't want me to go anywhere. God wants to do his thing. I'm just along for the ride. And his small, still voice is behind me. Whether you turn to the right, to the left, doesn't matter, Jeff because I'm the one calling the shots. I've laid out your path before you. I already took care of it. You're not going to step outside my will because you died to yourself. It's no longer you who lives. It's my son Jesus Christ who lives inside of you. And the life that you now live, you live for my glory. You're a new creation. You're not a sinner anymore. You're not a slave to sin. You don't have my wrath. Whether you turn to the right or the left, you're not going to disappoint me because it is my son who lives in you. It's no longer you who live. It's my son who lives in you. Do you think I'm going to let my son bring shame to himself? No. Do you think you're going to make a choice that's going to impact my kingdom? No. I'm making the choices. I'm calling the shots. I'm leading you in the way you should go. 
That's easy. Very easy. Stick with it as we go through this series. Don't give up on God and don't give up on Platt either because he's going to bring it full circle. But in order to talk about the good stuff, we've got to understand the reality of our situation. Jesus, I pray that you would really open up our eyes and remove blinders off of our eyes, that we would see the true gospel, that we would see what you really long from us. You don't long for discipline. You don't long for ritual. You don't long for parts of our life. You long for the whole of who we are. God, you long to bring glory to yourself. You long to manifest yourself. And that if we will completely surrender to you, that you will do just that in and through us. I pray that this word would become alive and active in our lives. I pray that you would create an insatiable desire within us to, to not only get in your word, but, but to chew it up to its core to consume it, to breathe it, to become it, that it would be the very tongues that proceed from our mouth, that that the very words that come from our mouth would be more filled with your scripture than any other thing, that the songs that we sing and the meditations of our hearts would be your truth, so that when the enemy comes to still kill and destroy, we can answer with the truth of God that brings life, that brings revival and awakening, that brings healing, that brings restoration, that brings freedom, that breaks down the walls of humanity and sin, that never returns void. Lord, make the truth the foundation upon which we live our lives, that every thought that comes into our mind would be filtered through your truth so that we could live the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your son's holy and precious name, I pray. Amen. We'll see you next week.